All right, you can grab a seat. Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Go ahead and uh, take a copy of the Bible if you have one with you or on your phone. Uh, or if not, there's one in the pew back in front of you. If you'll open it to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 will uh, serve as our text this morning. <clears throat> you uh, will all be happy to know that by last count, uh, 38 chicken wings lost their life to the glory of God this week, thanks to my stomach. They were dry rubbed, garlic parmesan, and mild, but they were eaten to God's glory. Last week, we had a good time talking together about the topic of pleasure. How do we live distinctive Christian lives that find joy in what God is doing in the world around us? If you're new with us, let me remind you of uh, what we're doing. We're in a series, a teaching series called Alien Residence, uh, derived from Peter's letter where we are told, we're challenged that we are to live in distinctive lives while being meaningfully present in the culture that God's placed us. We can't extract our lives from the world, but we can live distinct lives in the world. In some way, as our image denotes to us, that we would have distinctiveness about us that sets apart the Christian life from the normal lives of those around, that perhaps goes beyond slapping a fish bumper sticker on your car, or hanging a banner out front of your house, that there's something distinctive about believers that runs much deeper than that. And so throughout this series, we're considering critical areas that are perhaps often uh, outside of the realm of a Sunday morning sermon, and asking how does the gospel shape how we understand these aspects of life. This morning, we have the great privilege of considering politics together. Now, as we turn our attention to that subject, we believe clearly here that the Bible is sufficient to guide us into answering each of these questions. Certainly, the Bible was written a long time ago into people in vastly different cultural contexts, and so it's not going to give us precisely the exact answer to every question that we may face. For example, if you're considering the implications of a new job offer, you're unlikely to find the answer mapped out for you in Paul's letters. However, you will find principles about God's work in the world that will guide you in this process. And you're also going to see reminders of the truth that you are indwelt by God's Spirit, which is capable of leading you into all truth. And because we're going to need both of those this morning, the guidance of God's Spirit to point us to truth, let's pray together before we consider the topic of politics. God, we recognize that as we consider um, this divisive topic uh, from a Sunday morning pulpit, we, we need um, great wisdom, and we need uh, skill that can only come by means of your spirit to protect us um, from foolish words, from divisiveness, that would harm your reputation in our day. And so I ask that uh, by the grace that is given to us through Christ, that you would guide us into that truth this morning, that you would allow Paul's 
exhortation to the church in Rome to uh, provide for us principles that can shape how we think about and speak about the political landscape of our day. We recognize that what is happening here is a, is a small microcosm of what's happening in the church across the uh, landscape of North America this morning. So we pray for our friends that will stand in pulpits this morning and declare your truth. Would your word fall fresh in the lives of those that are leading uh, churches uh, around North America, particularly for our friends at the church at Greer Station, at Slater Baptist this morning, we pray that your spirit would be present with them, that the same spirit that's at work to guide us into all truth would also guide them into all truth, and that as a result, your fame would go forward in our day. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. So the very word itself has become a synonym for manipulation or all sorts of foolishness. You want to offend somebody, call them a politician, right? Few topics are as divisive as politics. You want your grandpa to say something downright crazy, ask, so pops, what do you think about Obama? This is going to go terribly wrong, terribly fast, right? But it's not just grandpa's age that makes this such a hot button issue. I mean, try putting some type of political comment on your blog or social media feed, and watch the shrapnel fly. This is one of the primary reasons that I'm grateful to be broaching this subject this week. While there's no week where politics is completely off the public radar, there are certainly uh, high watermarks, either based on the election season or when the next publicly elected official does something crazy. Discussing politics outside of the election season provides us an opportunity to consider this topic from a broad perspective without the accusation that I or any pastor of campaigning for a certain political personality or platform. For those of you that fancy yourselves as armchair politicians, you're likely to find this morning only scratches the surface. As we're going to seek to derive some big picture, 30,000 foot principles that shape how we live distinctly in the face of particularly the American political landscape. You would not be surprised to note that the Bible addresses the issue of politics on a number of occasions. Any religious movement whose central figure is crucified with a sign over his head that says King of the Jews is going to have to deal with the question, so what do we do about all these other kings? This, in fact, would become a central reason for martyrdom in the first century. It was not so much that Christians professed faith in Jesus, but that they gave their ultimate loyalty to him and not to a human king. And so Paul begins the 13th chapter of his massive corpus to the church at Rome with a discussion on how the church should respond to governing authorities in the culture. It's interesting to note at the outset that Paul would tackle this topic here. His flow up to this point in the book has been very similar to other letters that Paul writes. First, he's going to scale the brilliance of God's work in the world, particularly his saving work, that he would receive depraved sinners to himself through the finished sacrifice of Christ. And then like in his other letters, he's going to turn his attention to the practical outworking of that claim. How does this then shape how we are to live? In other sections, 
for example, the letter to the church at Ephesus, this practical discussion is going to center around human relationships, how a husband should love his wife, a wife her husband, parents their children, children their parents, and believers one another. But here in Romans 13, he begins with this in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Consider for a moment, this topic is of particular importance to those living at the epicenter of the Roman Empire. On the one hand, the Jewish people historically had been given remarkable protection from the Roman government. They were seen as this fringe minority, but their customs were protected by Roman law, such as their Sabbath practices. Christianity, being born at the heart of the Jewish people, was seen, at least at first, as a minority offshoot of this Jewish tradition. So when Paul is brought before Galileo in trial in the book of Acts, Galileo is dismissive of the charges against Paul, assuming that he's granted the same protection as the Roman as the Jewish people. This would not last long, however, as the persecution of Christians under King Nero would soon begin. And so it was vital that Christians learn now how to respond to governing authorities before the tide turns. Paul writes here that they are to be subject to these governing authorities. This is quite practical wisdom with a moment's consideration. Don't cause a stir Because if you do, if you are unsubmissive, it is going to radically hinder your mission. Live quiet, humble lives without drawing undue attention to yourself because the last thing you want is the government to turn on you. However, this is not Paul's logic. He says, God has all authority and all human authority is granted by God. So here's what we want to do. Let's tease out five principles this morning of how we should respond to human government. These may or may not be on the slides behind me. If you've got a pen, I would encourage you to write these down as you think about them. So principle number one from Romans 13 as we think about living as alien residents in the area of politics. Principle number one, all governments are instituted by God. All governments are instituted by God. Human leadership has always played some role in the outworking of God's mission in humanity. And all societies have demonstrated a need for government. In fact, it's a testimony to the human state, to the depravity of humans. They can't exist without some form of government. People don't naturally play nice with each other. So these leaders, and this is critical, whether righteous or not, whether godly or not, are instituted by God himself. No one wrestles power away from God, as if there's a heavenly arm wrestling match and some rogue politician wins. We can rest confidently in the fact that God is fully in control of the establishment of any human leader. We see this throughout the scriptures. Consider John 19, 11. Jesus' own trial says to Pilate, this is great. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So in the face of his impending crucifixion, he says, you'd have no authority 
Unless, not unless it was given by humans, but unless it was given by God. In Acts 4, a text we'll consider again later, when faced with the condemnation of the government around the spread of the church, we read, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So he testifies to the human government that's in place, and then he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So he points to Herod and to Pontius Pilate and says, they are an outworking of your purposed plan. Throughout the Old Testament of our scriptures, we see this reality, that God can use even sinful governments to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God can use sinful governments to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Consider Isaiah 44, 28, who says to Cyrus, the leader, known world at that time, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes. This is God speaking of a pagan leader, and he says, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all all of my purposes. Or Jeremiah 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against the land and against its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So notice the point. God says, in the face of Israel's rebellion and idolatry, that he is going to turn the heart of a pagan king to execute God's justice against the people. And notice the language he uses again here. Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon, is my servant. The heart of the kings is in the hands of the Lord. This then, as practical application for us, frees us from getting overly rattled by the next political campaign. Right? We see it every campaign season. This election is the hope of the world. No, friends, it is not. This is the most important election for the history of God's work in the world. No, friends. While political elections have great consequences to the world, their outcome can never thwart the purposes of a sovereign God. God's work in the world does not depend on human government or even less on who is in office in the United States of America right now. He's got it. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So idea number two, principle number two. Principle number one, all governments are instituted by God. Number two, we honor God as we respect authority. We honor God as we, and I might say there, humbly respect authority. This is a particularly challenging aspect of walking with God. It seems that in every area of life, to be obedient to God requires humble submission 
to authority. And this, if you've ever been a parent, you know, is not something that people do naturally. We do not like being told what to do, even if the person telling us what to do knows best what we should do. There is something in us that resists authority. But the Christian life necessitates submission to authority. Submission to those that God has placed in authority in our lives and submission to God himself. If you, as a person, struggle with submission, then you are going to struggle with obedience to God. It's as simple as that. When it comes to human governments, the truth is clear. Because God puts leaders in place to disobey them is to disobey him. Because he puts leaders in place, because he establishes authority to disobey them, is to disobey him with one exception. The exception being, and listen carefully to my words. So God puts leaders in place to disobey them is to disobey him with the exception being when obeying him requires disobeying them. Okay? This is the one exception clause. When obeying him, God, requires you disobeying them. So when government or political actions extends beyond their jurisdiction to the things of God and would force Christians to explicitly disobey the commands of God, then and only then do we have a right to disobey. The example we see in the life of Peter and John in the book of Acts would be emblematic of this point. They called them, the government leaders and rulers called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. You may be familiar with the scene. They're uh, evangelizing the known world, spreading the hope of the gospel. The leaders say, you cannot speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So, Obeying them would have required disobeying him, and so they had a responsibility to obey him. Anytime, and this is where I want to push us, anytime this happens, disobeying him in order, uh, disobeying them in order to obey him, it must be done thoughtfully and respectfully and not as a maverick looking to pick a fight. We all know people who have a hard time playing by the rules. If they don't set the rules, they don't like them. You cannot live your Christian life that way. Like it or not, the rules are in place, and we have a responsibility to humbly respect those as far as possible. And in most cases, political action by our United States government does not explicitly force us to disobey God. Now, let, me, let, me, let me soften that a bit. The positions may not line up with biblical convictions and or the positions may make it easier for certain people to disobey God. But there is a wide gap between the positions making it easier for someone to disobey God, i.e. legalized abortion, and positions that necessitate you disobeying God. So the fact that legalized abortion makes it easier for people to commit murder and disobey God does not then 
force them to do so. Right? It's a totally different discussion. Christians will be more winsome when saying no to unauthorized demands if they have been gracious in saying yes to authorized ones. There will and may come a time when to be a Christian in the United States will necessitate us saying no to certain governmental policies. But we will earn a right to be heard far more readily if we humbly and graciously submit in every area where we can, rather than consistently looking to pick a fight. Okay. Four, verse three, the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong, on the wrongdoer. Principle number three, we respect the government as we live righteous lives. We respect the government as we live righteous lives. Paul's point is clear. The government's primary task is to maintain order and restrain evil. So, if you're living a righteous life, then in most circumstances, you have no need to fear. They are given the sword for a time to execute God's judgment against sinful behavior. But you, if you live a life of good conduct, you have no reason to fear. The government can fulfill its good purposes in restraining evil, and you can fulfill your good purposes in living a righteous life. And the necessary implication of this, of the fact that the government's primary responsibility is to restrain evil, is that we should avoid placing more responsibility on the government than it should rightfully bear. They have a vital role in the functioning of society. But government is not designed to address the fundamental issues of the human heart. That's not its purpose. There is nothing like politics to expose our tendency to believe that humans can solve problems that only God can solve. Politics, more than any other area, can quickly become a false god in which we place our hopes for solving the world's problems. And friends, that is not its task. If you find in your heart the propensity to throw up the peace sign of solidarity when the Volkswagen bug drives by with a visualized world peace bumper sticker on it, or pound your fist in angst when Toby Keats, the angry American, blares and that Statue of Liberty starts raising its fist, then you, friends, may have yourself a false god. The salvation that the world needs will not come from Capitol Hill. It simply can't. That is not its point. And so, 
This helps us to avoid placing ultimate hope or, and perhaps this is where we need to be leaned into more, uh, ultimate blame on human leaders. They have a massively complex task, and yet their role is limited and temporary. All human governments will ultimately come to an end. Do you remember this claim, right? Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. And with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is the rightful ruler. He is the one that we can place our trust, our ultimate hope that his government will be established and not some Americans, American politicians. So, as Russ Moore says, the head of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, we don't go about politics as gloomy pessimists, continually wringing our hands or crying conspiracy, and we don't do it as naive utopians, believing we can organize our way back to Mayberry. We do it as those who weep for those around us who are being sifted by the darkness, and we do it as those who are cheerily marching to Zion, knowing that whatever the short-term setbacks, we are on the winning side of history. Good. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of your conscience. But for the sake of your conscience. Principle number four. Human re humble respect for human government is good for your soul. Humble respect for human government is good for your soul. Something, I don't know a better word than snarly, something snarly happens in the human soul in people who are constantly looking to pick a fight. You ever been around that kind of person? doesn't matter what you say or how you say it. They always have a better way of saying it or some way to disagree with the thing that you've said. It does something snarly in our hearts when we become that kind of person. Humble respect for those in authority. Notice, notice Paul's argument that conscience is at ease when we're living righteously and respectfully. We should obey, not simply because we fear punishment, but because it's the right thing to do. But because it's the right thing to do, it frees our conscience. And when it comes to social issues, you, all of us, our conscience is going to be uniquely pricked in certain areas. And we must act and speak on these. We want to address the issues where human depravity is running amok. We want to lovingly expose darkness wherever possible. We must, friends, avoid the propensity of partisan politics and recognize that within all political parties and leaders, 
there will be blind spots. Something weird happened in America in the early 80s with the religious right, where conservative Christianity got equated with conservative politics. And we need to be the type of people who are thoughtful enough to see beyond the veneer of the uh, Democratic and Republican divide. To be a conservative Christian does not, in every case, equal conservative Republican politics. And we've got to be humble enough to admit that and thoughtful enough to see where our blind spots may lie. The gospel requires repentance of sin and faith in Christ, not loyalty to a certain political platform. We have to do the hard work of, in spite of partisan politics, speaking on the issues of our day where darkness abounds. You can't speak the gospel in 19th century America without addressing the issue of slavery. And you can't talk about the gospel in our current American context without discussing marriage and homosexuality, which is what we'll do in the coming weeks. These issues matter, and we must address them winsomely and passionately. And in order to be good citizens, Christians need to be informed on these issues that relate to the public square. This is how you are alien residents. Your conscience is awakened, and you speak out. You, you do your part. You, one, take responsibility for electing godly leaders. You play a role in that. Number two, you leverage your gifts to serve wherever you can. Some of you are astoundingly bright in the area of politics. Some of you, God has placed in you a burden and the ability to maneuver in these political realms. And some of you, God is going to position you to have great impact in our culture from that platform. Friends, don't be so naive as to assume that the only way you can serve God is by being a pastor in a local church. For some of you, the most God-ordained means of serving God is by serving as a local politician, running for a political platform, getting upstream of culture, and speaking to the issues of our day. You may have far more influence than I ever will. This is the way we leverage our gifts to be alien residents and speak to issues that matter. And then three, we personalize our passions. We personalize our passions. I'm concerned that we're so quick to speak to public square issues using public square platforms, and we miss the opportunity to love people. Perhaps more important than you writing a blog on the latest social craze is loving a person that's affected by the issue that you're addressing. Particularly when your voice is not even recognized in the public square. We should hesitate for making grandiose statements that will isolate us from others and put up a barrier for actually loving people. It's one thing for Russ Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, to speak on an issue. You on Facebook 
not so much. Right? Perhaps more important than you making a backhanded comment on social media that's going to further ostracize you is you doing the hard work to build a relationship with somebody that's affected by that issue and love them well. Care about the issue of abortion? Then get involved in the lives of unwed teenage moms. Love them meaningfully. Have one into your home. Do the hard work of building that relationship first. And let other people speak about these other matters. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, and to them taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Principle number five, and lastly, all human governments can be honored without being worshipped. All human governments can be honored without being worshipped. We can show honor to those in leadership, whether we agree with them or not, pay taxes, we show respect, we give honor. Why? Paul tells us, because they're ministers of God. They're servants of God. Put in that place by God. Peter in his letter, in 1 Peter 2, writes this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's an astounding claim, right? To a pagan emperor, honor him. Even to ungodly leaders, who are most certainly the governing authorities in Paul's day, we show respect, we show honor. This then reminds us that we should exercise the greatest caution when speaking about governmental leaders personally. While we may be critical of their passion, of positions in light of biblical truth, to condemn the character of one of these leaders seems to me to be an adre- a direct rebellion from this text. Speaking disrespectfully of them as an offense against God and a bad testimony to the name of Christ. Because someone is our president, he is deserving of your prayer and your respect. So, how do you watch Fox News to the glory of God? How do you watch Fox News to the glory of God? You watch, number one, thoughtfully. Contrary to their tagline, There is no such thing as an unbiased newscast, right? In fact, we live in a visual world where good looks and a plausible soundbite are often all that's needed to make headlines. 
This week I was, uh, I happened to be in Columbia, downtown Columbia at the time of the shooting at USC's campus this week. I was in a room full of recent postgrads when the news broke uh, of the shooter on campus and they locked down uh, the surrounding buildings. And I watched as 20 young men in their 20s, they didn't run to a TV, what'd they run to? Their cell phone. They followed Twitter for the latest updates on what was happening nearby. This was unheard of 20 years ago, right? That in 140 quick characters, we could communicate truth to the world. We live in a soundbite world. The average soundbite has shrunk from 45 seconds 10 years ago to 15 seconds in 1985 to 9 seconds in the 1988 presidential race. Imagine, what can you say in 9 seconds? Because all news and all politics is a recreation of reality, we must engage thoughtfully, sifting all things that we see and hear through the grid of God's authoritative word. We do it humbly, recognizing that the last thing we need to do is run to some grandiose statements, vaulted political positions, but humbly, lovingly, respect those that God has put in authority. And thirdly, we do it prayerfully. This, this seems to be the most clear application of how Christians are to relate to government. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So how do you watch Fox News to the glory of God? You allow the stories that stream across your feed to provoke in you a hearty prayer life for those that have massive responsibilities in our culture. Rather than assassinating their character, you get on your knees and pray. If there are things that you don't like about their positions, you beg God to change their heart. And you lovingly and winsomely engage in the ways that you can. And so I thought this morning that the most appropriate way for us to end our time together is doing just that is actually praying for those that God has put in authority over us. Specifically, in our church this morning, I want us to pray for the President of the United States who has a weight of responsibility that most of us cannot imagine. And we can humbly and respectfully be the kind of people that while we may disagree in places, can honor him enough to pray for him. I want us to pray for the state leaders that God has put in place to give care for the context that God has put us in right now. And I want us to pray specifically for our military who is out executing government actions, serving in harm's way, putting their life on the line so that we have the freedom to do what we are doing here this morning.
that is a distinctively Christian way to engage in politics. We love them enough to pray for them. So here's what I'm going to ask. Um, rather than me praying and you sitting there passively, I want you to pray. So we're going to do something weird, and uh, this has the potential to single out some of you. So here's what I need you to hear. Um, we're actually going to circle up and get in some huddles and pray together. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you're not comfortable praying, um, you don't even know how to pray, you are not going to be singled out. Here's all I want you to do is in your huddle, you passively sit and watch other Christians pray for people in, in the government. I hope this is winsome to you. That rather than soundbite, trite statements by believers on social media, you would see Christians that care enough to pray. So we're going to get in groups of eight or ten sitting around you, two or three pews that can circle up. And I need some of you here this morning that are comfortable praying to take the lead. Don't put anybody on the spot in your group. Don't call on somebody to pray because they may not be comfortable doing that. And I want you to pray specifically for those three groups, for our president, for our state leaders, and for our military this morning. And after five or ten minutes of prayer time together, Stephen will bring us back together and we'll sing. So wherever you are, if you'll just circle up, I know this is strange, but if you'll just kind of clump up, somebody take the lead, and uh, I want you to lead us in prayer together.